This is a unique experience for me, um, simply because uh, I've not been here long enough to recycle a sermon before. Um, and in some ways I'm doing that. And the reason I'm doing that is because I skipped over. Some of you might have noticed this. We're going through Mark. We're going through verse by verse. Um, and, and I made almost no comment on the Last Supper. Did anybody notice that? I, I read it, but I made almost no comment on it other than to say that Judas was present. I said that, uh, what, two, three weeks ago. Judas was present. Jesus offered him the bread, offered him the wine. But other than that... We made no discussion about it. And the reason is that I, some of you know, uh, if you've been here for a little while, how passionate I am about remembering that this was a Passover Seder that Jesus experienced with His disciples. And the first November that I was here at New Beginnings, in 2012, I preached a sermon called, Shall We Ask Him? in which we talked about the Lord's Supper and the symbolism that was in place there and likely what Jesus was trying to do with the Passover Seder as He encouraged His community to begin to live into that festival differently in light of what he did. That's been three years ago. Now, we, you hear a summary of it every time we take communion. And for those of you who have joined us on Maundy Thursday in the last three years and have participated in the communion service at our house or at one of the other houses who hosts a Seder, you've heard this too. But for a, a number of you, I'm becoming aware, you never heard this sermon, you haven't been to a Seder, and maybe some of what I'm saying on communion Sundays is a bit mysterious. Like, what is, why, what, what's happening? And so I thought, here we are in Mark at the Lord's Supper. I need to speak on that again. And so last week was the week I should have done that, right? If we're following Mark, but this week was Communion Sunday. And so I had a choice to make. Do I change our entire schedule or do I just skip ahead, preach the next passage and then go back? And that's what we're doing today. So we are in Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 26. And the title of that first sermon three years ago was, Shall We Ask Him? And so today the sermon title is, Shall We Ask Him Again? And before we get to the passage itself, before we read it, I just want to begin with an illustration that I think is going to help us get into the place of why I think this is such an important subject for us to talk about, not just once or twice. But you'll hear this sermon again if you stay around long enough, I'm sure. What we mean by the words we speak can be quite different from what our listeners hear us say. I'm sure you're aware of that. There's an infamous illustration of this reality that comes out of the history of World War II. It's probably a review for some of you, but I know for me this is sort of a new uh, bit of information. But the following quotation comes from an article that you can find on the NSA government website. It says this, The story of how an ill-chosen translation of the Japanese word mohutsatsa led to the United States' decision to drop the world's first atomic bomb on Hiroshima. And that's well known to many linguists. But perhaps it would not be amiss to retell it briefly, just in case some reader of this essay is unfamiliar with the word, and in the hope that readers may be inspired to avoid the two tragic linguistic errors that the story points up. In July of 1945, Allied leaders meeting in Potsdam submitted a stiffly worded declaration of surrender terms and waited anxiously for the Japanese reply. The terms had included a statement to the effect that any negative answer would invite prompt and utter destruction. Truman, Churchill, Stalin, and Chiang Kai-shek stated that they hoped that Japan would agree to surrender unconditionally and prevent devastation of the Japanese homeland and that they patiently awaited Japan's answer. Reporters in Tokyo questioned Japanese Premier Kantaro Suzuki about his government's reaction to the Potsdam Declaration. Since no formal decision had been reached at the time, 
Suzuki, falling back on the politician's old standby answer to reporters, replied that he was withholding comment. But he used the Japanese word mohusatsu, which is derived from the word for silence. However, the word has other meanings, quite different from that intended by Suzuki. In fact, one of the possible meanings of that word is, your question is not worth my answering. He meant to say no comment, but we don't speak Japanese. And so international news agencies saw fit to tell the world that in the eyes of the Japanese government, the ultimatum was not worthy of comment. U.S. officials angered by the tone of Suzuki's statement and obviously seeing it as another typical example of the fanatical bonsai and kamikaze spirit decided on stern measures. Within 10 days, the decision was made to drop the atomic bomb. The bomb was dropped and Hiroshima was leveled. So you find that in the National Security Agency's files, that report. It's a pretty significant misunderstanding, wouldn't you say? And those kind of misunderstandings, they happen all the time. Some of them are petty and trivial. Others, like this one, huge and consequential. No matter how careful we are with our words, there is no way to guarantee that those who hear us will understand what we were trying to say. Now, it's one thing to appreciate that in our day-to-day -day lives. A bigger thing to appreciate that on a global scale, where cultures and languages are crossing all these mediums. But it's even another, maybe bigger, unnerving reality when we recognize that even the inspired scripture of God can be misunderstood, misappropriated, misused. I'm convinced that those sorts of misinterpretations and misunderstandings of the Bible occur most frequently when we fail to appreciate the broader context and passage, the passages we're studying have been placed in. So what do I mean? Well, I'm going to talk about a couple of things. If you've taken classes with me, you've probably heard this, but here we go. First concern is literary context. We need to make sure that we understand the place our verse or verses play in the larger book or story. If I simply said to you, God hates, and left it at that, how would you know what that meant? Who does God hate? What does God hate? Or are we just saying that God is a hateful being? God hates. Would you be surprised to know that I just quoted scripture though? God hates comes from Psalm 5, verse 5. But without the rest of the context, let alone the rest of the sentence, there's no way to know what that means or what it's meant to say. So sometimes we're talking about literary context, simply reading enough to know what's at stake. But by broader context, we can also mean historical context. And let's face it, all of what we read in Scripture was written a long time ago by people who lived and moved and breathed in their time in some ways similar to us, but in many ways very differently than we do. And as inspired by God as they were, they're speaking out of their culture as much as we read out of ours. And if we don't appreciate the world in which the writers of the Bibles lived and the cultures of which they were a part, it becomes really, really quite easy to misunderstand what they were trying to communicate to us. Our primary passage today in Mark chapter 14 concerns an event that has proven particularly easy to misunderstand if we as readers fail to appreciate the context of that event in the culture of Jesus' day. So if you have Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel according to Mark. We're in chapter 14 this morning, going back a little bit to a passage that I skipped. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. 
But permit me to give you just a little bit of context as you're uh, turning there. By the time we reach Mark chapter 14, we're nearing the end of Jesus' ministry on earth. And though it was customary for Jesus to come to Jerusalem, not just once a year, but several times a year, in order to celebrate various Jewish festivals throughout his adult life, he's now arrived in Jerusalem for the last time before his crucifixion. This will be Jesus' last Jewish festival before his crucifixion. And that final arrival happened on a Sunday. And in chapter 14, we find ourselves on the following Thursday. And uh, my preferred date for when this was is in April of 33 AD. In fact, this very night, Jesus would be arrested. The next day, he would be sentenced to death and he would be crucified. So what we find in Mark 14, 22 to 26 is in fact Jesus' Last Supper. It's a great name that your Bibles give to it. But what is masked there is that it's not just the last meal Jesus has with his disciples, but it is a Passover Seder. And that's not just any meal. It's not just any festival. It was a meal that occurred every year. In truth, it's probably more like our yearly celebrations of Christmas or Thanksgiving or Easter. It's a meal that takes an enormous amount of preparation. A meal that the Jewish people looked forward to, that they had to travel. Uh, Maybe it's more like Thanksgiving in that way. They had to travel to go to every year, to go to Jerusalem. And it was one of the most important yearly celebrations in the Judaism of Jesus' day. And we have to always remember that Jesus, when God chose to become flesh, He took on Jewish flesh, born into a Jewish family. He lived by the Jewish law, and He celebrated the Jewish festivals His entire life. And this meal that Jesus' disciples and He were preparing to eat is so significant that if we lose the context, we may lose even the meaning of the cross. I think it's that important. So as we read through this passage in Mark 14, 22 to 26, notice the details about the meal that Mark includes. So just notice what's eaten, what's drank, when it happens, the kind of things that they do, because all of these find their their home in the Passover. Each of these elements has particular meanings. We're going to talk about each one of them. And since this scene is the basis of our own celebration of of communion today, I'm hoping that we'll uncover the significance of all that we do on a monthly basis here at our church. So if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 22, and I'll invite you to stand for those who are able to do that for the reading of the Gospel this morning. I'm reading from the New Revised Standard Version. While they were eating, He, Jesus, took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, He broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. Then He took a cup, and after giving thanks, He gave it to them, and all of them drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine, until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. When they had sung the hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. I invite you to be seated. Now Passover is a complicated festival, both in its history and in its observance. And Passover finds its origin in the exodus of the ancient Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. And I just want to recall that history a little bit because it's important to know what Jesus was doing. God struck the Egyptian people with ten plagues over the course of a period of a few months. And God's intention seems to be kind of twofold. 
He wanted to reveal who he was to his own people, to the people of Israel who did not believe he could deliver them and who had thought they were forsaken and maybe had even come to believe that this God of Abraham was kind of a myth. It had been 500 years almost since, since those days when they thought Abraham walked with God. And so maybe most of them had come to think this was just a story they told themselves to make slavery a little better. So there's a lot at stake for the people of Israel in God's coming to Egypt and delivering them. But God also seems intent on convincing the Egyptian people that He is the God of all gods. And we can see that because each one of the plagues attacks a particular Egyptian god, proving that the God of Israel is more powerful than the pantheon of gods of Egypt. So all of that there is in place. And Passover finds itself in the midst of the tenth plague. And that is one that is the most devastating to the Egyptian people because God elected to kill the firstborn son of every household in the nation of Egypt. And that was going to include the servants in Pharaoh's household, but Pharaoh's household as well. And it was believed in Egypt that the son of Pharaoh, like Pharaoh himself, is a god, at least a demigod. Now that plague was on the Egyptians, but not only on the Egyptians. In fact, Israel too would have lost every firstborn son in every household of the people of Israel if they had not sacrificed a lamb that met particular specifications, smeared the blood of that lamb on their door frames, and remained in their houses until morning. That night God passed over, that's where the name comes from, the houses of the Israelites who obeyed those instructions. We don't know if there were Israelites who disobeyed them. If there were, then their children died as well. But those who obeyed their firstborn sons were spared. And out of that event came the festival of Passover. And the Israelites were commanded to observe that festival every year. And in the early days, before the Israelites had been given a homeland of their own by God, when they were wandering in the wilderness for 40 years, it was a meal associated with haste with rush, with readiness to pick up and leave at a moment's notice. But by Jesus' day, Passover had come to symbolize a leisurely meal of celebration. Through it, they commemorated God's deliverance of Israel from slavery in Egypt, and they celebrated God's gift of the promised land of Israel. And so, Passover in Jesus' day was to be permeated by what the Hebrew people called shalom, the peace, the fullness, the contentment of God. And so it was the practice in Jesus' day to eat this meal while reclining, at ease, laying on one side. And uh, I know it doesn't look like Da Vinci's table, you know, of the Last Supper, where they're all at a nice Roman table, sitting in chairs and all that. They would have been leaning on cushions and reclining. The Gospel, Mark doesn't give us that detail, but the Gospel of Matthew does, and it was part of the practice of the Jewish people. But Jesus' Passover was different, because even though it was supposed to be a relaxed, easy, fun festival, Jesus was not full of ease. In fact, He brought a lot of tension to that moment. I mean, He had just told them that He was going to be betrayed. And He also indicated to them that His death was imminent. One, on the night of this Passover, the first and only begotten Son of God would not be passed over. He would not be spared. He would be the Lamb whose blood would protect the rest of us from the avenging angel. And like the Lamb of Passover, He would not be sacrificed by a stranger. He would be betrayed by one of His own, by part of His family, by one of the twelve who had spent their lives with Him. 
and they represented the 12 tribes of Israel. But what's interesting in Mark, did you notice this? Despite all of those correlations, Mark doesn't mention the Passover lamb. He doesn't mention its presence at the meal, and Jesus doesn't inform it with any meaning, maybe because we're meant to imply it. Instead, Jesus chose to associate his sacrifice with two other traditional elements of the Passover feast, namely the unleavened bread and the wine. So we'll deal with the unleavened bread first, which is usually the part of communion that we eat first because of the Passover. So we'll get there. Leaven served in ancient Israel the same purpose that yeast does today. But leaven and yeast are not the same thing, so I've been told. I have no idea what leaven is, but it did the same thing that yeast does today. So it's the ingredient in the culture of ancient Israel that was used to cause bread to rise. However, if you've ever cooked with yeast, you know that you have to wait for yeast to work. Right? You can't just throw some yeast in and throw it in the oven and get a nice piece of bread. You have to wait for the bread to rise. It takes time. And of course, on the original night of Passover, the Israelites didn't have any time for the yeast to rise. They were leaving that night. So when they made their bread, they made it without leaven because there was no time. It needed to be cooked. They needed it for the journey. So they made unleavened bread. So originally, as I said before, the meal was one of haste. But again, though, by Jesus' day, the unleavened bread had taken on a somewhat different meaning. Leaven had come over the course of Israelite history, and this happened through the teachings of the prophets over centuries, really, if not millennia. It had come to represent sin in the camp, corruption, that small amount that can permeate everything. It's a good analogy. I mean, if you've cooked with yeast, you see the difference it makes in a loaf of bread. And so it became common Jewish practice in Jesus' day to take all the leaven and remove it from the house prior to Passover. So there's a, there's a ritual even today in which the, the kids go through the house trying to find that last little packet of yeast or leaven to get it out of the house before Passover because there can be no leaven in the house. And that had come to symbolize for the Jewish people a house free of corruption, a house free of sin. So the unleavened bread in Jesus' day carried an additional symbolism. It was bread which had not been corrupted, that was cooked without evil. And it was of that bread that Jesus took and said, this is my body. And we're going to eat that today when we celebrate communion at the end of the service. And in doing that, we recognize that the lamb that was sacrificed for us, that the precious lamb of God who's taken away the sin of the world, that the Son of God, who has protected us from God's avenging angel, was an innocent sacrifice. That he was not guilty of the things he was charged with. He was not guilty of any offense against God or against humanity. And so the bread has to be unleavened. When, we first, when I first came to New Beginnings, we were using saltine crackers. And uh, I, I wanted unleavened bread. And uh, I've got nothing but complaints ever since. But <laughs> we're sticking with it. That's why the bread is unleavened. We lose some of the symbolism if we, if we just bake a loaf of bread and break it up. Jesus' sacrifice, and we must remember this, it is not justice. It's not just for an innocent person to die for the wicked. That is not justice. It is mercy. It's not fair. There's nothing fair about someone being killed so that others can be free. But that is grace. 
Jesus' innocence does not make this just. If anything, it makes it more merciful, more gracious, and less fair. At least for Jesus. Mark has told us, while they were eating, he took a loaf of bread, and after blessing it, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. According to Jewish tradition, the prayer Jesus would have prayed, which we translate, some translate blessing, is this. This is the Hebrew. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam hamotzi lachem min haaretz. And in English, it's this. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, ruler of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And so with Jesus' disciples at the conclusion of the service, we will eat this unleavened bread as a commemoration of the body of our Lord. Human flesh without corruption. I hope you'll eat with me. And then Mark proceeds to tell us that after they had eaten the bread, therefore after the meal, Jesus took a cup. Now during Passover, this cup would have been filled with wine, and it would have been one of four symbolic glasses taken at various places in the liturgy of the meal. And all four cups commemorated four verbs which can be found in Exodus chapter 6 verses 6 and 7. You're welcome to turn there, but I'm just going to read it. Exodus chapter 6 verses 6 and 7. Listen for the verbs. Say therefore to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will free you from the burdens of the Egyptians and deliver you from slavery to them. I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my people, and I will be your God. You shall know that I am the Lord your God who has freed you from the burdens of the Egyptians. So those are the four verbs. The verb, I will free you. Remember, these are coming, the, the titles of these cups are coming from the Hebrew, and the English might confuse you, but just trust me. I will free you became the cup of deliverance. First cup taken in the Passover Seder. I will redeem you, I mean, I will deliver you became the cup of salvation. I know, you'd think that would be the cup of deliverance. It's just a bad translation. It's perfectly good in, in Hebrew. The third, I will redeem you, became the cup of redemption. And the fourth, I will take you as my people, became the cup of consummation. The first two cups, the cup of deliverance and the cup of salvation, were taken prior to the meal, early in the celebration of Passover. The cup taken immediately after the meal, however, right after the bread, is the cup of redemption. And this is the cup that Jesus associated with His blood. When God promised to redeem the Israelites from slavery, He was recognizing that this was a, there was a cost to God. That there was a price that was going to have to be paid to see them set free. To redeem something is to buy it back. So if you or I were to uh, pawn something, uh, they would give you cash for whatever you gave them. And if you wanted it back, you'd have to pay cash to get it back. Right? You'd have to, in Jewish terms, redeem it. The third cup of Passover represents the price God had paid to see His people delivered, saved, and brought home. And Jesus indicated in no uncertain terms, and for any Jewish people there who knew their festival and had been part of it their whole lives, it would have been quite astounding that He was telling them that His blood was the price of redemption. Which is why He took that third cup. This is my blood of the covenant. But before we come together, and before we partake of this seemingly final element of the Lord's Supper, of communion, of the Eucharist, we have to observe what happened next. And this is clear in all of the Gospels. You notice in verse 25, Jesus went on to say, 
Truly I tell you, I will never again drink of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. What do you make of that? Oh, there's a few options, I guess, if we don't read the rest of the story. Like maybe Jesus was saying, I'm going to be dead, so I'm not going to eat anymore. Maybe that's what he means. But of course, the other Gospels tell us that when Jesus was resurrected from the dead and he lived and moved among the people for 40 days, uh, he ate with them at least on two occasions. Once eating fish and another time simply saying, what do you have to eat? I'm hungry. So it's, it's not just a declaration that he's not going to eat or drink anymore. There's something else at stake. Maybe Jesus is kind of doing some Nazarite thing. Like, I'm not going to drink alcohol anymore until we drink it in the kingdom. But that's strange especially since this was Passover. There was a fourth cup in the Passover commemoration in Judaism, the cup of consummation. Probably the most important cup. It was the cup that had come to represent the fulfillment of all the promises God had made to the people of Israel. The promise to give them a land of their own, to make them free people, to bring the men in and put them at ease, to set them up as His kingdom on earth a place of true and lasting peace for the people of God. And so that last cup was a celebration of the completion of God's Passover, the fulfillment of God's desire to bring His people into a home and a country in which God Himself would dwell with His people and be their God. And Jesus refused to drink it. He said He would not drink it until the new heaven and the new earth had come, until He drank it new with them in the kingdom of God. And so for this reason, we have to appreciate the reality that Jesus' Passover is incomplete. That He did not finish it. He will not finish it until He returns again and brings with Him the new heaven and the new earth. The fully realized kingdom of God. So when we lift that glass in our own commemoration of communion, there are multiple significances. Certainly we proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. We recognize that this is the price. We don't have to understand how it's the price, but somehow the blood of Jesus is the price that must be paid to see us redeemed from our slavery to corruption and to sin and to death. So we do celebrate that. But even more, in the raising of the cup of redemption, each time we do it, we invite Jesus to take up that fourth and final cup and to finish what He started, the cup of consummation. In taking the third cup, we ask Jesus to return and take up the fourth to finish what he started nearly 2,000 years ago in this Passover meal. This would be a good time for our ushers to go and uh, collect the kids. I hope they've gotten far enough in their lesson to make that worthwhile. So if somebody wants to do that, I invite you to do that. But this is most likely why the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 has told the church that if we eat or drink of this meal in an unworthy manner, we eat and drink judgment on ourselves. In eating this bread and drinking this cup, we're asking our Lord to return this very day, even this very moment. We ask Him to take up the cup of consummation, to pick up that cup that has sat on the table for 2,000 years, that represents God finishing what He started and finally doing what He promised. And we ask Him to take it up. And if we're not ready for His return as people and as a church, then we are consequently asking for God's judgment to come on us because when Jesus returns, God's judgment returns with Him.
So the question we have to ask is do we really want Him to come? We sang it today. Come Lord Jesus. But do we mean it? We don't have to be perfect to make that declaration. We don't have to be living up to where our hearts want to be consistently and all the time. But we do have to long for His coming and His kingdom. Not just to be safe or to not have to cry anymore. But the real heart of His kingdom are we living into and wanting a kingdom of love in which mercy and grace come before judgment. In which God's goodness is dispelled in every heart. In which sins are forgiven easily and quickly. And judgment is reserved and slow and patient. Do we want that world? Do we really want it to come? Now before we lift, they're welcome to come in if they're in the hallway. We'll just send them in. And I'm just going to wait to let them come in. They're welcome to come in if they're ready. Love to have you guys come back because uh, this is a meal for you too. And not just for adults. But before we distribute these elements and we take this meal together, I am aware that perhaps some here this morning are not really ready for Jesus' return. For one reason or another, today is not a good day for Him to come back. And if you were knocking on the door, you say, can you give me an hour to get things shaped up? Tomorrow's a little better for me, Jesus. It's been busy. I have some plans that I'd like to get to. For one reason or another, we may not want Him to return today, at least not right now. And so I would ask you, before you take this cup and this bread, before you receive it, would you make your confession before God? Would you tell Him what you want? Whether or not you've lived into the reality that Jesus has described to us, do you want to live into that reality? Are you ready to ask Him for that? Would you confess your sins before God? Would you submit yourselves to Him as our rightful ruler, as our rightful Lord? And so we're going to pray the Lord's Prayer today before I invite those who will be helping me with communion to get set. And if you don't know it by heart, um, I invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 9. And uh, please do that if, if you don't know it by heart or if you're going to get confused because I say it different <laughs> than you learned it. Like if you know it in the King James, you might want to open Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. We might say it a little different. And when we reach that moment in the prayer in which we confess our sins and ask God to forgive us with the same measure with which we have forgiven others, maybe those might be more than words today. Maybe you'll mean them. And in meaning them, you'll be ready. Perhaps they might come from the heart and be words full of confession and of submission to Jesus. Maybe if there are things that you're holding back and you haven't wanted to extend forgiveness to someone who's harmed you, maybe when we say those words, you'll let it go. But don't sing that song. Don't sing Let It Go. <laughs> Just let it go. Everybody's pretty serious there. 
my fault. Hey, hey, that's good. Amen. I I like it if we understand it. Um, But if we can let it go, if we can turn our faces to Him, if we can ask for the world that He wants to bring and truly mean that we want to live into it, we are always ready, no matter our feelings, no matter our emotions, no matter our successes or failures. We need to take this meal. The church has long taught that somehow in commemorating the Passover together, God's grace is apparent in that meal. And it's astounding to me that there are so many folks who feel they have to be worthy of the meal. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's not a meal that the worthy come to. It's a meal that the hungry come to. Not those who are hungry for food or wealth or power or or prestige or a name or a reputation, but those who are hungry for the kingdom of God. Who are tired maybe even of our own sins. Are you sick and tired of falling into the same patterns over and over again? Well, you might think that the patterns themselves exempt you from the table. But if you're sick of those parents, then you're waking up. Because if you're sick of the patterns, the Holy Spirit of God is with you. This is a table we come to because we want Him, not because we are worthy of Him. And so the church has long said that when you most need to be eating the meal is when you feel most unworthy of it. But when you most long for His grace. And that's what we mean when we say this meal is a means of grace. It is a place in which God reminds us of all He has done for us. And when that happens, and we, we eat with our mouths, and drink, and we smell and taste, the reason it's small is because it doesn't have to be big, it just has to be visceral. Because in this we remember what God has done for sinners. But of course, if you want nothing to do with God... And if he came to your door, you are ready to slam the door in his face. Of course you don't want to come. Why would you? <laughs> you know, who would want to do that? But if you need his grace, this is one of the ways we show him with our bodies what we mean in our hearts. And so we're going to pray together. As I said, it's in Matthew 6, beginning in verse 9. Many who've been raised in the church know it. There's nothing magical about the words, but it is the pattern that Jesus has taught to us. Two changes I'll make to what you're reading there if you're going to read the prayer. We say, in the heavens. I say, in the heavens. And because I've got the microphone, it'll feel like we. Um, So our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name. We're not praying yet, just giving you a heads up. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in the heavens. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours are the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. This is the pattern. We pray to a God who we are in relationship with. Our Father. Who is not some far away place, but in the heavens. All around us. We live and move in the heavens, by the way, biblically. You're walking through it every day. In Him we live and move and have our being. Blessed be your name, hallowed be your name. We declare him to be good. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in the heavens. Govern us in our lives the way you govern the the solar systems and the galaxies and all the other forces of the world. And forgive us our debts 
the things we owe you in the same measure that we forgive those who owe us. And lead us not into the time of trial, but deliver us from the evil one who would try to make us fail as Adam and Eve did in our time of temptation. This is the prayer he's given to us. It's the pattern. We're going to pray the words. Let's pray together. Our Father in the heavens, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in the heavens. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours are the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.